I believed in Jesus for a long time relative to how old I am, I guess. Um, but there have been times when I couldn't help but wonder if my faith was real. And when I say real, I mean that it, like, it looked like it was supposed to, you know? Uh, because I was facing some seemingly impossible situation, um, you know, a terrible flaw in myself or some devastating circumstance, I've often wondered if my own understanding or my trust in God was misguided or misplaced. Um, and through times like this, thankfully, God has frequently shown me how conditional or frail my belief was. Um, and in doing so, he, he, he's faithful to kind of break me down where I'm weak and build me up stronger there. Uh, in the passage we're studying tonight, Jesus asks his disciples, do you now believe? Immediately after they say, this is why we believe. And so, unless Jesus was hard of hearing, um, his questioning of their belief seems somewhat strange. After all, these were the guys who followed him for three years, literally everywhere he went. They listened to everything he said. They followed everything he commanded them to do. And so, if anyone were to believe in Jesus, it, pro it probably would have been them, right? Um, but as we look into this passage, I think we'll see that Jesus had much more for his disciples than just a disappointed rebuke. So um, I'm going to now turn to the passage for tonight. It's uh, John 16, 25 to 33. I think it'll be on the screen. Um, starting at verse 25, this is Jesus speaking. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things, and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray real quick. Father, um, I pray that you would just be here tonight. This is your time, and I pray that in spite of any ways that I'm lacking and with all the things that I've prepared, Father, I pray that you would uh, speak your truth in a way that's necessary, in a way that builds us up, a way that turns us towards you, increases our awe and affection for you, God. Uh, I pray that uh, everything here would be something that we cling to, that we would know you better. And uh, I just thank you so much that you give us times like this to gather as your people. Um, as family, uh, to just know you better and to know each other better. Pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. So let's quickly review what happens in this passage. Jesus and his disciples are together in a quiet room sharing the Passover meal together. And real quickly, Passover was and still is one of the most important holidays for the Jewish people. It was instituted by God um, at, as a time to remember and celebrate how he spared them from the plague of death that led to them being delivered from several hundred years of enslavement. 
So this Passover in particular is the last that the disciples will share with Jesus because immediately after, Jesus will be betrayed by Judas and soon after crucified. But before their time together comes to an end, Jesus has already spent several chapters in John teaching and encouraging the disciples, aware that they have little time left. And so in this passage specifically, Jesus gets down to brass tacks, telling them in plain words how he is about to leave them and rejoin his Father in heaven. In light of this plainly spoken promise, the disciples then affirm their own belief in him as the Son of God, but he questions them. And he also foretells of them abandoning him and hiding, but then promises them peace, stating that he has overcome the world. And when I look at this question, I, I was thinking of the t- of times when I've made a genuine confession to somebody telling them, you know, you know I, I messed up this way or, you know, this is the way it worked. And sometimes they immediately question it. Uh, my family's, <coughs> excuse me, my family's a pretty cynical bunch, so we're, you know, like little distrust there. So, um, you know, I, I'm sure most of you have at some point in your life come into that situation where you're telling somebody something genuine, something you genuinely believe, something you genuinely experience, and they immediately questioned it. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if you felt frustrated or confused, maybe both. I know for me, usually it's a combination of both. Um, and so I, I wouldn't be surprised with the disciples as well as Jesus questions them, do you now believe, right after they say, and this is why we believe. I wouldn't be surprised if they felt at the very least confused, right? His immediacy in questioning their belief makes it seem like he's deeply skeptical of, of his closest friends. But when we look at what he says immediately after, I think we get a more nuanced insight in regards to Jesus' motives. Verses 32 through 33 say, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Knowing that Jesus had personally witnessed the devotion of his disciples in three years plus of following him everywhere, and reading what Jesus says immediately after the question, I posit that in asking his disciples this question, he's not doubting the existence of their belief, which might be easy to, to, to think, but actually he's helping them take a mental step back um, in self-reflection of the foundations of their faith. But why would he do it, and why at this time? Being God himself, Jesus knew how things were going to play out from that point on. Uh, he, he knew that things were going to go south pretty quickly from that point. And it's, it's believed that 10 of the 11 remaining disciples uh, were martyred. They died as martyrs, which means that they held to their belief in the face of intense persecution to the point where they were executed. But before they you know, met, met their selfless noble ends, right? the closest followers of Jesus scattered and hid, like he says. The way, you know, the way a bunch of cockroaches do when you flip the lights on. Um, so it's, it's kind of curious to think, what was the status of their belief in those moments where they scattered and hid? Before we go further, um, I think it's important that we actually define belief. Generally, belief is defined as the cognitive acceptance of something as true or valid. But in relation to God, belief or faith, and I, those terms are pretty interchangeable. Belief is all-encompassing and not merely rational. 
belief is that which is so firmly held in one's heart and mind as true and good that your thoughts, your actions, your desires, your priorities, your resources, those are all shaped by and around the thing that you believe in. I'll repeat that one more time. Belief is something which is so firmly held in one's heart and mind that your thoughts, your actions, your desires, priorities, your resources, they're shaped by and around that thing. To believe in Jesus means that someone understands and embraces him as God's sinless son, the one who necessarily died to save hum sinful humans and make them righteous before God. And this allows us to have eternal life in close fellowship with our creator. It's an in, in, internal understanding like that will result in a life lived in persistent desire to obey God's command, to love him, to love your neighbor, and to make more followers of Jesus. Uh, this next bit might seem completely unrelated, but please bear with me for a second, and I think hopefully it'll come together. Um, as, as a lot of you know, one hobby of mine is collecting sneakers. Um, for me, sneakers are you know, an opportunity to express myself, to appreciate various artistic aesthetics, um, experience technological innovation, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so I follow certain news sites and personalities to stay on top of sneaker-related news. And I, I spend weeks, sometimes months, deliberating the purchase of, of certain sneakers that I do end up buying, which means I, I look at pictures, I watch videos, I read popular feedback, I scan eBay and like other marketplaces. I save up my money, and then sometimes I actually buy the buy the sneakers, right? And so I buy and wear sneakers like the ones I'm wearing, uh, in spite of you know the risks that they could get damaged or what what have you, because I enjoy them. But if we take a step back for a second, I think we'll notice how my interest in sneakers very neatly fits into the definition of belief. When I, especially when I first started collecting sneakers. I spent a lot of my time, my mental capacity, and resources on sneakers. But what does my belief in sneakers give me? What does it produce? I mean, not much more than the occasional compliment or you know, like just the very superficial satisfaction that I have something cool that I, that I like, right? But I've also learned what they don't provide. Sneakers can't provide me the true joy that I want in the face of my grandfather's decaying health. They can't provide me confidence as I prepare to enter a career that's known for its pitfalls and hardships. And sneakers definitely can't give me the, the peace or the joy and the certainty as I'm facing my family's compromised mental health and which means my family's wholeness overall. I never thought that I'd, I'd be in a, my family of all families would be in this place of potentially not being one relatively healthy unit, but that's something that could happen in the future. And my belief in sneakers definitely doesn't do anything for me there. And of course, no, no reasonable person, including myself, <laughs> thinks that sneakers can do that, right? It's, it's, they're just shoes, right? They're just shoes. <laughs> but there have been times when the way in which I look at, you know, treat sneakers, whatever, my attention to them, when it, it, would, it might say otherwise, that I'm looking for something more that I can't find there. And I'm sure, you know, most people here don't really care for sneakers the way I do, which is totally fine. But 
things like Netflix binging and shopping and sports fandom, those fit very similar places. Sometimes they're innocuous, but sometimes they compromise my, my faith in Christ. And obviously all the things that I've mentioned thus far, sneakers, Netflix, shopping, those are relatively trivial things, right? But even substantive good things like family, your career, your relationships, money, they become sources of our investment, our identity, and our, our satisfaction. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Happy marriages, you know, um, sizable savings, a high-profile career, healthy family, those are all good things. And it's good to be happy with them and to find satisfaction in them. But at the same time, those things are finite. They can crumble and they can disappear at a moment's notice. You know, people have affairs. Economies crash cancer comes, all of a sudden things just are thrown into complete chaos. No one expects it, right? No one's prepared for it. To build, to build our hopes and dreams on things that are so fragile in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's dangerous and unwise because they're, they're so prone to falling apart because they are finite. However selfless and valuable those things are, which they can be, However, however selfless and valuable those good, good things are, they are incomplete and inadequate substitutes for Christ himself. Jesus made the value and necessity of belief in him abundantly clear. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The most famous piece of scripture, bar none, is John three sixteen makes the same promise of eternal life. So Jesus repeatedly promised eternal life to all who believed in him. That is a byproduct of belief in him. And obviously that promise has huge implications. But our text specifically and this question, they look primarily actually to the consequence of belief here and now while we live on earth before we ever get to the, the afterlife, right? In verse 33... Jesus says, you will have tribulation. And I think that statement is very noteworthy because he's promising to his most faithful followers that they are inevitably going to experience struggles and not that they would be exempt from them. But then he also comforts them saying, take heart, I have overcome the world. I found that my, when, when I have struggles and trials and they push me into a corner, a spotlight ends up burning uncomfortably bright on the things that I'm founded upon. Whenever my peace, my hope, and my joy are not completely placed and found in Christ, <laughs> sorry, um, and his promises, it's all too easy to see how lesser things are propping me up, the way you might see twigs under a big mansion made of glass. Christ is never completely removed from under me, but there have been too many times where I subconsciously drifted into leaning a little too much, or sometimes way too much, on my outward appearance, my talents, my friendships, other things that are temporary and finite. When facing crushing sorrow or overwhelming uncertainty, only the unchanging truths that God is certain and that the redeeming work of Christ cannot be undone, only those two things have and will strengthen and carry me through all those times. 
while questioning his disciples, Jesus gave them these very promises to turn to in their darkest hours. I think it's easy, it's easy to talk about the value and the need for belief, but to possess such belief is a whole other ballgame, and it's not as simple as comprehending the things that I've said so far. You know, I've heard a lot of stories of people who desperately wanted real faith, but they couldn't seem to find it. And I don't know if that's anyone's story here, but whether it is or not, I think the following should hopefully be helpful in identifying what it looks like to develop sound belief. First and foremost, for us to have sound belief, God has to act. He must bring intellectual, emotional, and spiritual conviction about our own sinfulness and his utter holiness through his word and his Holy Spirit. We must continuously expose ourselves to God's word and pray that his spirit illuminates the toxicity of sin and the cleansing power of grace that we might come to confess in heart and mind that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Rather than trying to develop a, a watertight intellectual matrix that justifies every aspect of Christianity, or rather than building your faith off of intense emotional experiences, we have to look to God himself for a firm foundation. But once we truly confess faith by conviction through God's word and his spirit, we have to seek to continually grow in that faith. And it's by those same avenues that we will. Rather than walking out on God in frustration <clears throat> or doubt when something is not comprehensible or right in our lives, we have to cling that much more desperately to him. Instead of having belief be dictated by the fluctuations and flaws that are inherent to life as a person, we have to build our belief on God himself, who is unchanging in his character and his works. What happened on the cross and at the tomb, physically and spiritually, that cannot be erased by any argument or idea or event. Jesus questioned the belief of his disciples in those precious moments together at the table because he loved them and he knew them. He knew how dangerous the roads ahead were and he wanted them to have a firm foundation where they could, one that they could rest and stand upon along the remainder of their roads. By confronting sin itself through the cross, Jesus made it clear that the most profound freedom and joy to be had was in relationship with him. This relationship can only be attained through belief that God grants us, a belief that we can and ought to build our whole lives around. Like a skilled gardener who knows the specific needs and conditions for his plants to thrive, God, as our maker, is perfectly knowledgeable as to what it takes for us to grow into capable and strong daughters and sons, once we're able to withstand the onslaughts of this world. It's through Jesus that God has extended each of us here an invitation to find strength and peace and identity in him daily as our Lord and Savior. And I hope that this time has helped you realize how important it is that you make a habit of regularly examining the foundations of your faith. We have to be attentive to when God is calling us into self-reflection the way Jesus did with his disciples. Is your belief in Jesus always the strongest of your beliefs? What could be pulling you away ever so slightly or strongly from him? Are your time, your thoughts, energy, resources, are those properly ordered in relation to your faith? And if you don't believe in Jesus at the present moment, there's, st there's still something for you in Jesus' question. 
even though Jesus promised tribulations to those who did believe, I don't doubt that everyone here would agree that life apart from him comes with its own set of issues. Jesus said, in me, you may have peace. And however skeptical or hesitant you might be of any Christian story, I can tell you as someone that has a past of intense anxiety, I never found lasting, powerful peace until God brought me close to him. Just to give you an idea of that, that anxiety that I was riddled with, even as a first grader, I would lie awake in my bed at night and I would lose sleep because I was worried about the future. But once Jesus became my anchor, that anxiety began to slowly recede as my confidence in him and his promises grew. When I look back at the restless, anxious person that I was, I'm totally baffled at the nearly carefree person I am now. It's the epitome of a 180 degree shift. But because I know that God is the one who granted me that this immense peace, I come into a state of total awe and wonder. God is good and the peace he promises is unimaginably good and permanent. In the person and works of Jesus, there is true joy and true peace. You just have to ask him to help you believe. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you that you've done so much in spite, of, in spite of our wrongs against you, in spite of our, our fickleness, our inability to, to stay true at times. Thank you that you gave your son to bring us close to you, to make us whole again. I pray that the words that were spoken tonight, I pray that they would resonate, that the questions would sit and make us a little uncomfortable, that we would constantly be in a state of reflection upon what our faith is built upon. And I pray that you would give us the grace and the wisdom, the discernment to see when we're not fully founded on your son. I just thank you so much for everyone here and I pray that you would just be with us as we part ways from here. In your son's name we pray. Amen.